Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Scott Deluzio, D-E-L-U-Z-I-O, and he's just published a book on August 31st, 2021. Title of the book is Surviving Son, an Afghanistan war veteran, reveals his nightmare of becoming a gold star brother, and it already has excellent reviews on Amazon, and he can talk more about it. It's a very timely book considering just what's happened this year, but uh, Scott can talk more about that. So, Scott Lucio, are you there? Yes, I'm here, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard of your, I mean, I think this is your first book. Can you talk about your background and what led you to write Surviving Son? Yeah, so my background is uh, as an Army veteran. I uh, served between uh, 2005 and 2011. Uh, during 2010, I was deployed to Afghanistan, and my, my brother was deployed at the same time. We were both over there at the same time, which uh, a lot of times people, people feel like that's uh, you know, something that doesn't happen or it shouldn't happen. Um, but it actually does happen quite often uh, where, where brothers will get deployed together. But the, um, the unique thing about our story is that uh, my brother was killed in action while we were over there, while we both were deployed over there. And so, so that's a little bit about uh, kind of me and my background. And after I came home, uh, from Afghanistan, I, I knew that there was a lot of of my story that was uh, that that should be told. That I wanted to be told, um, but I wasn't quite in a place, uh, you know, mentally in my own head to be able to write a book. But I knew there was there were certain things that I didn't want to forget. So I, I began just jotting down notes, and I had a you know a whole long sheet of notes that that was just important information I didn't want to forget. I knew. I didn't know if it would end up being a book, but I knew that someday my kids might be interested in in what I had to say and what I experienced. And so, by by uh, writing that stuff down, I wouldn't forget. And then uh, a couple of years ago, it, it it dawned on me that maybe I should write a book. Um, you know, I, I started realizing all the the struggles that a lot of veterans were having, and those those veterans were were going through a lot of the same things that I I went through. And so I, I said, you know, I, I wanted to be able to get it out there in front of a lot of people and, and say, hey, look, there, there's hope for you too. Um, and so in, in addition to the book Surviving Son, I also started a podcast, Drive On Podcast, where where I interview other veterans and, and talk to them about uh, the struggles that they've gone through and, and how they've overcome them, everything from P PTSD to substance abuse and all, all sorts of uh, different topics. Uh, some really in-depth, hard, hard-hitting topics, and uh, you know, we also talk talk to uh, service providers that that will uh, offer services to veterans um, in addition to the traditional services that you might think of, like through the VA or whatever. So, so we talk to to a lot of those people, and they're all there to um, to really get the the message of hope across to to veterans. And so, where did that really for you and your brother? Where did it all start for you? to make that decision to join the military. Yeah, so after 9-11, uh, I think my brother and I both, uh, we were both raised very in a very patriotic family. And so uh, after 9-11, I was in college at the time and I, I almost wanted to just drop out of college right, right away and just join the military right off the bat. But I, I ended up staying and finishing my degree. And uh, it wasn't until a couple of years after 9-11 uh, that my, my brother, uh, he started going to a, uh, a school, a Norwich University, which is a, a military uh, school. And he, he ended up joining the Vermont Army National Guard. Uh, the school is up in Vermont. And so I, I got to learn a little bit about the military through him. And so he's my younger brother. So it's kind of, uh, you know, reverse roles there where he joined first and then, then I joined after. And so I, I joined about a year later. 
And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where if my, my little brother can do it, I think I, I probably can do it too. So, so I, I kind of had that, that going for me too. And so you kind of felt challenged maybe by him. And so what was your experience going into the National Guard? Yeah, so so going into the National Guard, for, for anyone, any, any of the listeners who are not familiar with the National Guard, the National Guard uh, is just like the, the regular Army, uh, except with the exception that we, we train one week in a month and two weeks a year. Uh, we, we don't we're not the full time soldiers like the active duty soldiers are, but we wear the same uniforms, use the same equipment and all that kind of stuff. We, we we're all part of the same uh, fighting force. Um, and, you know, uh, really, I, I like I said before, I, I grew up in a patriotic family and I, I really wanted to give back and serve my my community, community and my country. And I knew it was at a time where where we needed uh, soldiers. And so that's what that's why I joined and that's why I wanted to serve. Um, and, and eventually getting deployed to Afghanistan was, was, uh, you know, what I signed up to do. So you, so you intended to go to Afghanistan, right? When you signed up, like you knew you were going to go there. Yeah. And at the time that we signed up in the, you know, mid, mid two thousands, like 2005, 2006, uh, kind of time period, you pretty much knew that if you were signing up and, and at the time you signed up for like a six year contract, you knew at some point during that, that enlistment that you were going to be deployed. You didn't know it maybe wasn't going to be that very first year, but at some point you're probably going to get deployed. And right. I think most people who signed up around then uh, knew that. So, so then you, it took like three or, or four or five years for you to finally get sent to Afghanistan. What was that like with the knowledge that you were going to be sent overseas? Yeah, so it was it was tough for me because I, I was uh, in a different place in my life than I was when I signed up for the military. Uh, when I when I signed up and joined, I, I was a single guy, no no real obligations at home. Um, and uh, by the time I got deployed, I was married and, and we had a, a newborn son uh, at home. And so it, it was a, a much different uh, situation for me than I, I had envisioned. And and so it was it was a hard thing to do to, to leave my let's see, maybe two month old uh, son at home, uh, who, who was, you know, just brand new to, to my life and my wife. And, and, you know, we we're just trying to get, get our uh, bearings on being parents, we had never done this before. And, and so then throw on top of that a, a deployment. And, and, you know, we, we had a big soup of, uh, you know, stress that that kind of affected all of us. Um, but but being deployed over there was, um, you know, it was, it was difficult, but it was, uh, satisfying in, in a, in another way as well. So you were sent, how long did you, uh, what you, did you show up there in 2010? Is that correct? Yeah. So we, we started our, our pre-deployment training in late 2009, like, uh, you know, November, uh, timeframe, uh, November, December, we, we did some training and then, uh, late January into February, we, we left uh, the United States and, and ended up in Afghanistan uh, early February, 2010. And so what were your first impressions of being in country there? Yeah. So when we, it's kind of funny, when we first landed in Afghanistan, we landed at uh, Bagram Air Base. And, and if for anyone who's been there, they, they know that Bagram is, is like a big city and it actually kind of feels like a city with the paved roads that they have and they actually have street signs and, and things like that. And it actually does feel like you're, you're in a city and, and it felt relatively safe. You know, we, we didn't have anything going on really there. And so, uh, so I, I was thinking to myself, well, gee, this, this probably isn't going to be so bad if this is what Afghanistan's like. And then we moved on to the next base, uh, Jalalabad uh, airfield. And, and that was a little more rustic. And, and I started to think, okay, well, th maybe this is not as good as I thought it was going to be. And then we finally moved to the, the final base where we stayed for the, mo the majority of our deployment. And 
that that was a very remote outpost. Uh, it was about two miles away from the Pakistan border, and uh, you know it it was it was out there when we landed. What'd you call it, Tokrom or something like that? Tokrom? Yeah, uh, Fab Fab Torkum, uh, Torkum. Is, is the name of the base that, that we were stationed at, and and when we landed there, it was pitch black at night, and we couldn't tell if we were you know, inside the base where we were going or if we were outside the base, we couldn't tell like if, you know, really anything that was going on around us. And, and so it was, it was a, a hectic kind of scary situation, just getting, stepping off that helicopter, not knowing what, what we we're stepping out into. Right. So, and so you were kind of, I mean, you talk about it in the book, how you, the American military was supposed to be kind of backing up what the Afghan military was like, right? Can you describe right. how, that support role was and what you were doing with the assistance supposedly of the Afghan military. Yeah. So our, our job there, we were there to help kind of train the Afghan uh, soldiers um, and, and their army at the time consisted of, you know, volunteers with, you know, they didn't really have much training. Um, they didn't have the same level of training that the Americans had. And so we, we were trying to help them and teach them. But it was really difficult because when we were trying to do that, um, especially during during the, towards the end of the deployment for me, uh, it was during the month of Ramadan, which uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar with that, it's a it's a month of fasting and, and things like that where, where they don't eat or drink during daylight hours at all. And during the summers in, in Afghanistan, it gets really, really hot. Um, you know, it's easily over 120 degrees on, on a daily basis. And so without eating or drinking, uh, they, they really didn't want to do too much as far as training and, you know, the, going through the, the drills and the maneuvers and things like that. So, so it was really hard to get them to, to do anything. And so when it came to actually going out on missions with them and, and being out there, they were really having uh, a hard time doing the missions well and, you know, uh, clearing the buildings and, and everything because they were they were just so depleted of their energy and their resources and stuff because of uh, you know all of all of that so it was a, a very difficult thing to do right so you were there i mean you were always kind of a, you're talking a, about all of the afraid i mean you do had encounters with the taliban and terrorists or what we call terrorists there um and can you describe kind of what it was like for you and the average soldier there yeah so uh, our, our job, what we had to do over there was, uh, for the most most part during our deployment, was to secure the border area between Pakistan and Afghanistan because the, the road that came through in the Torkham area um, was where the majority of the, the NATO supplies came through. And so um, we would pull over people. There would be a lot of foot traffic going between the border, and we'd pull people over and, and scan them and, and you know do, do security checks on them. And and so every once in a while, we would have a high value uh, target come through where where it would be someone, a, a person of interest who we suspected might be involved in some terrorist activities. And so so the thing is, we never knew uh, one day to the next who was going to be coming through there or or who might you know start trying to test our, our uh, reaction time and, and all that kind of stuff. So so we always had to be on alert, um, even if it was a, a re relatively peaceful area to be in, we always had to be on high alert because you never knew when when something uh, bad could happen. Um, and, and things would happen. Um, you know, I talk about it in the book where there was a, a child who um, he was riding in the back of a truck. Uh, we, we call them jingle trucks. But, you know, for people around here, they're about the equivalent of a dump truck that you might see in a construction site. And he popped up from the back of it and he and from my perspective, it looked like he was pointing a, a rifle at some of our, our soldiers. 
And so I, I went to raise my, my weapon up to shoot him, uh, to stop him. And this, this was again, maybe a 10 or 11 year old uh, child. And, and I realized at the very last second that he was just holding a piece of wood that was carved out to be the shape of, of a rifle. And so that was one of those things that where they were kind of testing what we might do. And, and maybe they even wanted me to, to shoot this kid and kill this kid so that they can use that as propaganda to uh, drum up support for, for their cause. And so yeah. didn't you, know, you call it like the four S's or something like that in response? Yeah. 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 So we had, had the four S's. It was the, uh, shout, show, shove, and shoot. So where, where you would actually have to, uh, shout at the person first and yell at them to, you know, tell them to stop or whatever it was that they're doing. And then, um, then you would, you would show your, or, uh, shove them. If, if you're close enough, you can, you, where you can actually push them, um, you know, push them away. Uh, then you can finally, at that point, you can show your weapon, um, and then at that point, you, if they continue to advance, then you then you could finally shoot them. And and so it was a long progression of things that you had to go through. Now, in a situation where uh, there was a you know imminent threat, and, and obviously this kid he was maybe seventy five yards away at the time, so I wouldn't have been able to uh, shove him or or anything like that. So I. I had to almost jump straight to the shoot uh, aspect of that. And uh, luckily I didn't, uh, for, for him, it was very lucky that I did not shoot him uh, because, um, you know, it, it, it would have been a pretty easy shot for me to, to be able to hit him from that distance. And you, uh, did you use interpreters there as well? Oh, yes, we did. Know. Yeah, we did. And, and, the, and the interpreters were, were great that we had uh, a lot of them, uh, they they really did believe in the, the cause that we were there for, and, and that we were helping their their country rid themselves of the Taliban and, and all of this the, this stuff. So uh, they they wanted us to succeed, and so they were there really working hard for us. Gotcha. And what can you describe what the cultural differences were like as somebody from the states coming into this, really on the other side of the world, almost of uh, Muslim population, different language. Yeah, it, I mean, it was a definite culture shock. I mean, you can go through all the, the cultural sensitivity training and all that kind of stuff that we went through uh, here, and they can you, someone can tell you all they want about what, it, what it's like over there, but until you get there and you actually experience the, the mud huts that they live in, um, literally their houses were made out of mud, um, and they would just pack bricks of mud, and they'd stack them up and, and make a house with, with like a straw roof and, and no running water or electricity, um, and it was just very primitive living, um, no, no hard paved roads uh, in going into some of these villages. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a really rough life. And, and, and it was the only life that they knew. And so it, it was, I think, also difficult for us to show them that there's anything else uh, out there. But, you know, we, we would we'd see things that you would never expect to see here in the in, you know the united states or any you know maybe even in in europe or whatever but you know i, I would as we were wa working the border area we would see people who were just walking by and they needed to use the bathroom and so they just stopped what they're doing and they just use the bathroom right there on the, on the road using their hand to to clean up and then just pick up and walk away and and to me that was just like mind-blowing you know that that someone is just going to stop and do that in the middle of the street and uh, and as if it's nothing, and, and people were walking around them as if it was nothing. It, it was just normal. wow, that's yeah. crazy. So they had the whole right hand, left hand uh, thing yeah. that they have in desert states around. So wow, so no left hand is like the 
a cursed left, hand. Right? Yeah, the left, left hand is the unclean hand. You don't use that for shaking people's hands or eating or or anything like that. You always everything is always with the right hand, uh, you know, for, for them. And, wow. and uh, yeah, so it was it was definitely a different way of of doing things. So when you're out of what's the, I mean when you're out of like Bagram or the main city I can't remember the name what's the main city in Afghanistan uh, right now? Kabul so Kabul's kind of supposedly the epicenter the farther away you get from these main cities you're really just going back almost in t- in time like right. 500 years yeah I mean it's almost I mean if you if you were to like visualize like biblical times of you know the, the way people might have lived way back then I think it, it's nearly the same with the exception of there, there are some cars there's some cell phones and AK-47s and outside of that it's very much the same not, not much wow. has changed since then and what was the attitude kind of other than the kind of interpreters or people who were friendly to the U.S. did you think that the kind of natives or the rural natives were where did they have a lot of animosity to the U.S.? What was their kind of opinion of, of the uh, U.S. military? Yeah, you know, I don't know that they necessarily had animosity, but I think that a lot of them were were looking to see what was in it for them. And, you know, if we had something to offer them, then they were they were all for us. But if it seemed like we weren't going to help them and we weren't going to give them the things that they wanted or needed, uh, then then they would be completely against us. And so it was a it was a balancing act, you know, to be able to win their support. And, you know, part of the mission was to win the hearts and minds of the people who were over there. Um, But at the same time, it's not a blank check that we can just give them anything that they ever asked for. So so there was quite a bit of a balancing act with, with that. Gotcha. And so then, I mean, did you I don't think when I read your book, you never really encountered your brother in Afghanistan, right? No. And, and that, so the last time that I saw him was, was back in the United States. Uh, we were, we were actually at the same base in, in, uh, Indiana, uh, Camp Atterbury. And we had uh, dinner together the, the night that I was leaving that, that base to go off to another base for training. And so that was the last time I saw him. Um, and we didn't really get to talk, uh, at all when, when we were over there. Um, just the, the communication just, was was difficult, you know, between the bases and um, you know timing of missions and when we were on, you know working and things like that. We just never really had the the opportunity. You know, we would send each other an email every once in a while when when we could, just saying you know, hey, thinking of you, that that type of thing. But um, I never really got a chance to talk to him. Um, the only time I really did get any kind of updates outside of the emails from him was uh, you know when I'd call home and get to talk to my my parents. And that, you know, maybe they heard from him the week before or something like that. And they just fill me in with, with some of the details. And then what, what, how did that, the whole situation with him uh, passing away occur and how did that affect you? Yeah. So the day he died, uh, I was out on a mission. Uh, we were, we were flown out with the Afghan army to a very remote village. We were flown out to the mountaintop and we went down to this village and we we're conducting our operations. We we're clearing houses, looking for, uh, stolen Afghan army uniforms and, and weapons that the Taliban, uh, would have, would have used. And, you know, we went through the village, we, we found all this stuff. And, um, later on that day, I got a call on the radio and, uh, uh, find out that the the commanding officer was looking for me. And so anyone who knows anything about the military, I was a, a sergeant, uh, E5 sergeant, and uh, the um, uh, 
the commanding officer very rarely would come directly looking for someone of my rank or, or my position. Um, they usually would go through the chain of command of all the other uh, people in that, that chain in order to get to me. Um, and so it was very odd that he was looking for me. And so I immediately I started thinking, okay, well, geez, maybe I did something wrong or maybe one of my guys did something wrong. And, and so I started trying to go, just run through all the things in my head, like what's going on with that. Um, and eventually I linked up with him and, and got, got in touch with him. And we, we started, uh, he, he told me to just like come over to, to this kind of more secluded area. And, and he said, you know, take your helmet off and, and take a knee. And I, I said, well, that, that sounds pretty strange. You know, outside the wire, outside of a base, they never tell you to take your helmet off. Like it's, it's like a big no-no to, to take your helmet off and, and do that. So I, I was like, this, this must have been really bad or, you know, something, I'm about to get some pretty bad news. And so he said, um, you know, my brother, his unit got ambushed and that, that my brother had gotten hit. And, uh, you know, naturally, I, 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 my mind just went to big brother mode, like, how can I help him? And I wanted to, you know, get on a helicopter, I went through the logistics of how I can get to him. And, you know, if he needed blood, or if he needed an organ, if I didn't need it, he could have it, you know, from me. And, you know, so I started going through all those mental uh, games, trying to figure out how to, how to get to him. And, you know, uh, then the commander said, no, I don't think you're really understanding me. I, he got hit, but he was he was killed. And so I all the emotions came flooding out and I, I broke down and, and and everything. And, and it was it was just such a, a nightmare to, to be finding out about it this way in this place and and everything. And it was just it was just so, so terrible. Um, but but then about 20 minutes later, uh, our, our own unit started taking fire uh, from from the enemy in, in the village that we had just gone uh, through, and it was it was a, a very difficult uh, thing to be able to have to put that that grief aside and switch back into army mode and and go take care of my guys and, and do what we needed to do to keep keep everybody safe on our end. And where what part of Afghanistan was your brother in, and what was he doing when when he was shot? Yeah, so he was in in a he was also in a, a somewhat of a remote village, and he was in a, a area called Paktia pr uh, Province in Afghanistan. And so what he was doing, um, their their job was was a mission to to very similar to ours, where they were going out and, and uh, clearing a village uh, to make sure that there was no uh, you know enemy activity going on in that village. And uh, as they were they're walking into that village. Um, they they ended up getting ambushed and in that initial ambush is when he got hit and and from my understanding he was uh kind of like the, the point man the guy kind of in front of the, the formation of, of troops who were walking and so he was you know in in the front in the lead uh and it was he was probably one of the first people that the the enemy saw as they they started opening up fire and so that that's what where he was um and and he ended up uh, he ended up getting hit, and and it was uh, it, it was a terrible situation for those so soldiers because not only were they in the middle of a firefight too, um, but but they also had to figure out a way to to get his body out of there because you know it's one of the things that that soldiers uh, agree to is uh, we'll never leave a fallen soldier, and you know we'll do anything to to try to get one of one of our fallen out. And, so and a couple other people died in that firefight, correct? Not just yeah. So, so um, the, the, my brother was the first one killed, and then another soldier, uh, American soldier uh, uh, named Tristan Southworth, 
uh, he was killed uh, while trying to evacuate my brother out of uh, that area. But I believe also an Afghan uh, was killed as well, uh, uh, on, you know, fighting on the uh, on our side. Um, but plenty of the the enemy, the Taliban uh, folks, were were killed as well um, in, in that. So then what happened next? How did that unravel with you being in the in Afghanistan and what was going on back home in the U.S.? Yeah, so th that was one of the things that, that was, was really difficult for me was I, I was sitting on a mountaintop in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan. And so my the commanding officer re recognized that I was in no shape to, to be there anymore. And I was obviously going to be sent home for you know his funeral and all that kind of stuff. So um, he had a helicopter come and take me out, uh, you know, pretty much as soon as he could after that, that firefight had taken place. And, um, and so, so I, I went out, uh, and the next day there was what's called a, a ramp ceremony, which is, uh, where they, they bring the, the bodies of the fallen soldiers onto the plane that's going to take them out of the country. And so, um, I like to equate that as it's kind of like a military equivalent of, uh, like a Catholic, uh, uh, wake where you you go and pay your respects to to the fallen and, and all that kind of stuff and so so we had had that and i, I was fortunate enough to be uh, be able to be a blood relative to be able to be there in and uh you know greet the people and there were there were so many people from all over the world who came to this um you know polish soldiers and uh you know civilian contractors and and high-ranking military officials or generals and stuff like that and so it really meant a lot to be able to be a part of that um, but then, then that took us, um, uh, so I, I ended up getting onto that flight and that flight took us to Kuwait and that's where, uh, my, my brother, uh, and I parted ways where, where we, we, he went on, on his separate way, uh, to go through the processing that his, his body needed to go through. And, uh, I continued on, on my, my journey home. And so I was home, uh, probably about two or so days, two, two to three days after, uh, after he was killed. So I was basically plucked right off the battlefield and in my, my home, uh, just a few days later. And, and it was, it was a, a tough transition, uh, you know, to not have that kind of decompression time and, and being able to process everything that had happened. Um, but, but as far as like what was going on at home, um, I wasn't able to call home until I got to Kuwait. So I didn't even know whether or not my parents knew that my brother was killed. And, and one of the, the protocols is there's a, a communications blackout after, uh, after a soldier is killed. And that's just to make sure that uh, the, the next of kin are notified appropriately and so that they don't end up getting a surprise phone call by you know, someone like myself to let them know of, of any, uh, anything that had happened over there. So, um, so I was not allowed to call home. Um, and it was, I mean, I was never left alone. I was always with people, but it was a very lonely feeling because I felt like I was, I was on another planet almost with, uh, you know, my, my family and the, the people who I really wanted to be with and, and be close to. It, it was just really hard to, to get in touch with them though. So you had the ceremony and the services and what happened next to your, with your career in the National Guard? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I found myself after, after my brother was killed after coming back home i just kind of in a in a funk i was just not myself anymore i i was i was angry i was depressed i was sad i was gr grieving still but grieving in in bad ways and I, I i wasn't i wasn't handling it very well and um i also had gotten injured on on that last mission that i was on uh where where i had had injured my knee 
And so I need required some surgery uh, to, on my knee. And that the surgery was going to require like six to nine months of healing time and physical therapy and that, that type of stuff. And that was about all the time that I had left in the military. Um, by, by that time, I, I would have been uh, discharged. And so I was going into the training every, you know, one week in a month and two, week, two weeks a year and everything. And I wasn't doing anything. I was just sitting there watching everyone else go off and run around the woods and do whatever that they do for the training. And I felt, I felt useless. And it, I was, it, that just added on to the depression that I had. And so I, I looked up, you know, would it be possible for me to be discharged uh, early from the, from the military, get, getting out of my, my full commitment? And in the Army, uh, there's a regulation called the Surviving Sons and Daughters. And that's where the title of the book, Surviving Son, comes from. And it basically states that if you are a surviving son or, or a daughter um, who, who had a sibling or you know, some other family member killed in action uh, uh, in, in the military, then you could be discharged out of the military uh, and, and be released from your commitment to your, your contract with the military. So you know, I, that, that's what ended up happening. And I, I filed that paperwork uh, to, to be released early and, and ultimately, uh, like, like anything in, in, the mil in, in the military and the government, it, things took a little, little while, but uh, you know, eventually I, I ended up getting a phone call one morning and saying, hey, your, your paperwork got approved and, and you're, you're officially out, you know, you're discharged. And so I didn't realize that that transition was going to hit me as hard as it did. Um, it was it was like a light switch going off um, where one, one night I, I went to bed thinking, you know, I'm, I still have this identity as a soldier. I'm, I'm, this is still who I am. And then I flipped the switch the next morning and all of a sudden, boom, I'm no longer a soldier. And, and it was, it was a hard, uh, hard to lose that identity too. And I didn't realize that at the time that it would have been so hard, but, but it was something that affected me uh, quite a bit. And so, I mean, I don't think you're alone. There's many people, many veterans who experienced a lot of emotional, psychological PTSD. Can you describe uh, what yours was like and how, what helped you to get through it? Yeah. So, I mean, after getting back home, I, I struggled a lot where I, I was um, not sleeping enough. Um, you know, I was having, uh, you know, the, all the, the nightmares and just difficulty getting to sleep, staying asleep, all that kind of stuff. And, and so I was, I was really struggling with that. And I, I, the only way I was able to find myself able to get to sleep was either through uh, sleeping pills or drinking too much to just make myself basically pass out and, and, and fall asleep. Um, and, and, and that was clearly not a healthy way to do, do things. And I don't recommend anyone use those ways of, of doing that. But, um, you know, and, and you're right, a lot of people do struggle with this and they, they do things like self-medicate and, and it's just not the right way to go. And, and so eventually, um, you know, the, the lack of sleep and the, you know, not taking care of myself and all of these things just all started bubbling up and it, it just really did make me into a much angrier person, a different person than I, than I had been before. And, and that's not the kind of, kind of person I really wanted to be. And so I, I said, you know what, something has to change and, and only I can change me. And I, I, I can't, I can't, uh, you know, just wait for everyone else to change so that everything else, you know, gets, gets better. But, um, you know, what, what I ended up doing is going to, uh, the vet center, which is affiliated through the VA and, um, you know, that they're available for anybody who, 
um, who served in any of uh, the wars that, that we've fought as a nation or, uh, you know, even for the families of, of our fallen soldiers, they're, they're available for, for counseling for, for that as well. And so needless to say, I, I ticked a couple of the boxes that, that allowed me to use their services. And, and so by going into uh, the vet center, I was able to talk about things and process my emotions a little bit better and, and get through some of these things and, and kind of over, overcome the, those, those hurdles that I, was, or, or that I was dealing with. Yeah, I've known a couple of people from Iraq who had a lot of lingering problems, like uh, bad nightmares, same type of thing, kind of self-medicated to try to calm their nerves or, you know, what would be shell shock. I think you described that in the book. So, yeah, it's a hard thing. Do you still have flashbacks of being in um, uh, Afghanistan? I do uh, sometimes, you know, like that situation that I described with that that child on on the uh, on the back of that truck, you know, pointing the weapon, and you know, that was one of those things that I, I never really, I never really thought of myself as a type of person who could ever harm a child, who could ever, you know, do any kind of harm or damage to to a child. Um, but then I was standing there with a rifle pointed at at a kid with the safety off, and my finger on the trigger, and I, I was ready to to kill them, and so that was something that was just really like raw and hard to process. And I later found out that, that that's a called a uh, moral injury, you know, where, where it really uh, strikes down like the, who you thought you were and it, and it injures you in that way. And so I, I had a, a lot of problems with that and processing that, but I also, um, you know, I also would relive that experience and where I, I would actually feel everything that I felt, while I was standing there that day, where I'd, I'd feel the the pressure of the rifle against my my shoulder and 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 see the things that I saw and smell the things that I smelled and and it just it really took takes me back to being in that place and that, those things they'll they'll happen from time to time where I I just will end up in that position and it, it's bizarre when it happens but and what do you I mean you kind of feel like the Afghan war was worthwhile right or do you what's your kind of thought about you being there the war and what happened just recently in 2021 yeah so i i feel that you know there's a lot of people who feel like the the war was a wasted effort and that these lives were lost for nothing including my brothers and and i talk about this in the book as well uh in, in surviving son I, I talk about my, my thought on, on this is that we took the fight to their backyard you know, uh, 9-11 happened. Obviously, that was a tragedy. It was, it was a terrible thing. And we never wanted that to happen here again. And so we we took the fight over there. And for those 20 years, I think we did a good job at, at keeping the fight over there and not having uh, the terrorists be able to rearrange our skylines anymore. Um, you know, we, we didn't have planes crashing into buildings and, and causing any kind of destruction on the level of a 9-11. Um, but but then I also look at the, the good that we did for the people of Afghanistan. You know, we allowed them to live in relative peace for those 20 years. Their children got to go to schools. Uh, we The infrastructure projects, the bridges, the roads, the water, electricity, all those kinds of things that we, we worked on over there helped to improve the lives of the people who were over there. And yeah, you know, I, I, I do wish that, you know, maybe things were done a little bit differently as, as far as the withdrawal goes. But I, I really do feel like, um, you know, we did a lot of good, and I, I do am, I am hopeful for the people of Afghanistan because some of those children who got an opportunity to go to school, they are now uh, older. They're probably adults and parents of their own uh, kids, and I, I think it's it's probably uh, pretty universal that that parents are 
are typically going to want better for their children than what they had. And uh, if they had the opportunity to go to school and then now all of a sudden the Taliban's taking that ability for their children to, to go to school, I think that's going to probably uh, anger quite a few of these people. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll, it'll light a little fire in them and it'll give them, them some desire to, to push back and fight back against To change it. Yeah. I mean, they got a taste of freedom, see what it's like now. Now they got no freedom under the Taliban. I mean, they have right Islamic version of it, I guess. Um, where's the best place to buy the book? Do you have, you have it on Amazon or do you, I don't remember. Do you have like a, Kindle version too, right? Yeah, so uh, the book's available on Amazon, uh, paperback and in the Kindle version. So you can you can go there. Uh, you can go to survivingsunbook.com to to check that out. Uh, if if you wanted a, an autograph copy, or we have links to the Amazon site, you can get get all of that there. Um, and uh, you know, as far as the podcast goes, uh, driveonpodcast.com uh, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts, uh, you can you can just search for Drive On Podcast, and you should be able to find it there as well. Gotcha. And it's under Scott Deluzio on Drive On Podcast, right? And your website is survivingsunbook.com. And people can reach out to you there. Do you have contact information there or other social media? Yep. Social media, um, you know, is, is there. Um, you can usually uh, the podcast is the best way to get me. Uh, Drive On Podcast on all of the socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, uh, you know, wherever you, you happen to be on there. Um, also, Scott Deluzio on all those as well. So, um, you can you can check all those out, and there's links to, to all the social media on on uh, on all of those those websites as well, and contact forms if you want to just reach out directly. Gotcha. And right now on Amazon, you've got 14 five star reviews. This book was just published two weeks ago. Again, the title of the book is "Surviving Son: An Afghanistan War Veteran Reveals His Nightmare of Becoming a Gold Star Brother." And the author is Scott DeLucio. Scott, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Stay there. Turn it off.